This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I remember when uh, I was a Zen kid. Uh, I was a PhD student back in uh, 2002, 2004. We used to visit San Francisco for uh, American Geophysical Union. And between our science sessions, my husband and I would uh, run to the city temple, uh, Page Street, uh, to get a glimpse of what was happening there and sometimes sit there. So it's beautiful to connect now. Um, I want to start with um, what in Rinzai school, Rinzai Zen school is called a koan. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with it. Here's how the koan starts. A monk asked, how about the lay disciple, Shishi, who worked the foot pedals, foot pedals, but forgot he was moving his feet? Where has he gotten to? Master Rinzai Plinchi said, drowned in a deep spring. That's the con, drowned in the deep spring. For context, Shishi was a monk. In, in some translations, they say he was a Zen master. He was forcibly disrobed during a purge of Buddhism when Linchi, Master Rinzai, was very young. Shishi was uh, forcefully put in a servant quarters and he made his living, or you should say he was a servant, thrashing and grinding rice by using his two feet. I don't know about you, but if you've been to some of the Asian palaces, they, they have this uh, area where servants use their two feet to constantly uh, grind grains and do other menial labor. So, so that's 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 a con from Rinzai Roku, which is one of the fundamental texts that students in Rinzai lineage uh, work on. Basically, there are. Uh, thousands of koans, and uh, it's one of the fundamental koans that we work with. If you are not used to koans, the, uh, basically they are paradoxical statements or stories or dialogues between a teacher and a student, um, which which the tradition asks us not to not to process intellectually not to process intellectually, but rather to, in some ways, repeat it like a mantra in our heads and find that fundamental paradox that the con or story is pointing to and present an answer in the interview room that shows you have, you have understood the paradox and you have transcended the paradox. So maybe a few examples will make this clearer. 
Uh, one of the famous koans is, show me the sound of one hand clapping. Okay, so it's say one hand. How does one hand clap? Uh, there is another con which says, show me your face before you were born. Do you see? If, uh, 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 Mother Mary, that's not a Buddhist con, but uh, that's a con all of us live with. Uh, Mother Mary is a con. She's virgin and she was pregnant. She gave birth. So, so uh, the, the, the Zen school that I have trained in and worked with, Rinzai School, works with tens, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of koans. And, and in this koan, there is, a, there is a Buddhist practitioner who is going through tremendous difficulty, right? You've uh, what you loved, what was your life has been snatched from Shishi. He's been enslaved. He's deprived. He probably doesn't get enough to eat. Maybe his hands are bruised, feet are bruised. But the statement is, He has forgotten that he has feet. He has forgotten how his feet are moving. Where has he gotten to? And Master Rinzai says, drowned in the deep spring. So the Khan, if you, if you ever work with a Khan, your task as a student would be, my task when I worked in this Khan was to to meditate on this phrase, there is a turning phrase in Khans. The turning phrase here is deep spring, deep spring. What is this deep spring, right? As you can imagine, this is not simply uh, someone who has gone unconscious because they just worked so hard. Not that, not that. Now there are these uh, uh, these traditional koans, lineage koans, and regardless of whether or not we relate to them, all of us human beings are facing, facing many, many koans, right? Many koans, we call them life koans. Uh, these, these difficult questions that we can't seem to work with, right? Uh, uh, as a society, we are living through the COVID koan, right? Um, one of the fundamental cons that you can imagine that I work with all the time as a climate scientist is the con of our climate emergency, climate crisis. I refuse to call it climate change because change feels change, change, things change all the time, impermanence. And one of the biggest cons with climate crisis uh, that I am living with these days is 
the, the, the deep call within me, deep call within me is how do I prepare myself, my beloved communities and, and people who would hear my voice for the trauma that is about to come our way in a way that is trauma-informed. In a way that is trauma-informed. What do I mean by that? I am seeing on my screen that there are 134 of us today gathered right now. 134 of us. Every fifth person in this room, at the minimum, this is CDC data, has faced sexual abuse as a child. We don't think about these numbers. Uh, one in three have witnessed as a little kid domestic violence, which often means they have seen their mothers beaten. So, so yes, I don't want to make anyone feel like a statistic, but I know there must be people in this gathering who face these things. And then they are layered. There is alcoholism in the family. There have been suicides in the family, right? Regardless of our race and gender, there are things that we have all faced. We don't talk about the depth and scope of that trauma enough. Okay? Uh, Buddhist communities, insight meditation, teachers, Zen teachers who have done psychotherapy training, psychology training, are beginning to bring that in, uh, insight about how much trauma we have to our meditation communities. It, it has begun to happen, but we haven't yet begun to understand how to deal with the trauma that is on its way, necessarily on its way from my perspective in a trauma-informed way. Uh, people say, we have solutions. We just need good leaders maybe, or we have uh, uh, science is understood, right? Science is clear. We have the solutions. We just need to apply it. Why are we not able to apply the solutions that we know exist? One of the fundamental reasons is that the, the depth and breadth of trauma that we have as individuals has taken away from us our ability to form relationships. Relationships. You know, one of the things that trauma does when it comes, comes is it, it makes us, puts us into these three or four fundamental states of uh, neurological, neurobiological states of mind, which is fight, flight, or freeze. Okay? Does that make sense? I, uh, fight is aggression that I, I'm gonna get into the fight mode. Flight is running away from the situation and freeze is becoming like a lizard hiding away, right? Not facing the situations. 
none of those three ways of being is conducive to forming relationships. And we don't, when we don't have relationships, when we don't have relationships, how will we come together to enact the solutions that are in front of our eyes? Some sense? You see, this, this, this koan that we started talking about, she, she is working so hard, his robes have been taken away from him and he's been enslaved, he's working day and night as a slave, grinding rice. One fundamental teaching that Buddhism, all schools of Buddhism give us that we have access to what this koan is calling deep spring. No matter when and where we are, we settle down, we pay attention to our breath, the space between our two breaths. We allow ourselves, surrender ourselves to those spaces and deep spring can open up. But that is an absolute point of view, right? There is an absolute reality that is always accessible and that is like a deep nourishing spring. What I am talking about here is how does that deep spring inform the times we are in today? And if I focus on climate emergency, climate crisis, I feel that we need to address this fundamental con of trauma that we are surrounded with because unless we have ways to face the trauma we are already in, we will not have the energy, clarity, uh, courage to face the trauma that from my perspective is on its way even if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions today, right? Um, I've I've spoken about it elsewhere. It's not as if we have crossed the tipping point and all we will all we have in front of us is doom and gloom. No. There are tens of tipping points. We have crossed only two and we need to do all we can to stop our uh, planet from crossing others that have not yet been crossed. The ones, the tipping points we have indeed crossed, they are going to cause a lot of suffering. I mean, the COVID is causing enormous pain. I hope everyone attending today has not faced too much, um, too much pain or death in their family because of this crisis. I myself uh, suffered uh, from COVID for four months my mother got sick. There's tremendous suffering going on right now. And my, my heart hurts, pains, when I think about how much more suffering is on its way because of climate crisis, climate emergency. And my heart also hurts, aches, 
when I think about how unprepared we are both for facing what will come our way even if we stopped all the emissions and number two how ill-prepared we are for stopping the damage we still can stop okay so the place where i have landed in the last year and a half or so working through this both knowing what i know intellectually as a climate scientist and what what i hear from teachers all over the world when they face difficult situations i've come with this phrase called islands of sanity in a sea of chaos i feel like we don't know how much chaos we will land into uh, but there will be chaos we we are already facing it you know um san francisco zen center community thasahara community california bay area knows the apocalyptic fires are here you all if you are in california you've seen you've lived through those uh, fires we gonna have more and more chaos no matter what we do what we can do is create islands of sanity in a sea of chaos okay and what are the elements of this these islands of sanity one fundamental aspect of island of sanity in my view is our ability to come together as small communities not necessarily in a group of 100 people but in groups of 10 15 20 maybe 30 small groups and their ability to uh shed the masks that we go around with go around with these masks i am okay i am strong i have my zen practice helping me um those are masks yes zen practice helps me and my heart hurts we need people who can come together in their authentic vulnerability and share their grief and anger uh i have found myself liberated by being able to do grief work we simply do not have enough psychotherapist in this country let alone the world where psychotherapy one on one psychotherapy can hold the kind of grief and trauma that already exists and is on its way yeah so that's my point number 1 and this this ability to be vulnerable to say what breaks my heart makes communities like anything anything when when especially when people in leadership roles become vulnerable it opens up a wave of warmth in entire community i know san francisco zen center community has been doing a lot of work on uh, racial healing on white people unpacking white supremacy and and all of those trainings i've been very happy to see what i saw last few days as i was thinking about this talk 
And I have found that in my experience, no matter how much we study, we come to a point where unless there is this basic thread of trust, all actions can be misinterpreted. misinterpreted. Uh, the, these layers of uh, privilege that exist and the privilege differential that exists in a community among residents, among teachers and students, among teachers, um, this, the, the, the layers of privilege, there are many layers of privilege and to, to live with warmth and to live with trust, nothing works better than vulnerability. Uh, nothing works better than me opening up, removing my mask and saying, folks, I'm really hurting. When I hear climate news, my climate scientist friends and I get panic attacks. See, and I need your help to prepare for this. I hope that makes some sense. So in, in, in my framework that I'm working with these days to create islands of sanity, to create these communities that will have resilience to face what is coming our way, number one thing we need is vulnerability among community members. Point number two, uh, and, and vulnerability, one thing that's important to say about it, somehow I feel that we have we have lost it in some, at least in some Zen communities. I haven't been in Zen center or lived there, but my experience sometimes with Zen tradition especially is that we, we have, somehow I had this message early on in my training that a good Zen student doesn't cry. You work through it. You access deep spring. You get courage and clarity. Uh, and at least, at least you don't go around being public about it. But being a, the ability to release the grief and to put my tears in a public sphere has been utterly liberating, especially in the context of climate crisis and racial justice crisis uh, that we have. Point number two is this little story that comes from Oakland, California. Uh, I was working with a group of climate activists in uh, Oakland and I met a farmer called Sean. Uh, I knew Sean lived very simply uh, and he, he's, he's like this pollinator activist who goes from place to place uh, sharing his skills. He's an excellent cook and grows food. I happened to ask him one day, Sean, how much do you, money do you need in a year to, um, to do well, to be happy? And he's a happy kid in mid-twenties, I would say. He told me $1,000. I had to ask him again, 
Do you mean in a year? He said, yes. The, the story in itself has stayed like a con for me. And, and I by no means want to uh, romanticize poverty. Uh, I am sure there is a lot, there is a lot that uh, people who make $1,000 or $2,000 have to struggle with that I can't imagine, you know. The place where I am going with this is an average person living in America, their carbon footprint is um, 30 tons, 30,000 kilograms, or you should say 62,000 pounds of carbon dioxide every year. Everyone sitting here, if you are joining from United States, that's the average amount of emissions you personally are responsible for because of the way we live, the way we heat our buildings, the way our food is produced, and so on. Everything together. Do you know how much this needs to be for us to have a planet with living human population uh, by 2030? I don't know if the chat is open. We could ask people. I just want people to take a guess if you are not familiar with climate science. I, and I can't also see everyone, so I am not able to see if people know. I'll tell you the answer. Someone said half of that. No, that's... Uh, that's not, that's not going to be enough. We need to half, maybe half our emissions as a planet. Uh, but what Americans need to do is way more because we produce way more than global average. Okay? Uh, I'll tell you, the answer is from 62,000 or 65,000 pounds of carbon dioxide every year, we need to come down to 5,000 pounds every year. And you know which country has 5,000 pound uh, emission average per person today? That's like countries we call poor. Uh, that's most of India, that's Africa. What am I saying here? Coming back to the story of Sean. Uh, it is not just about renewable energy. It's not just about uh, solar panels or windmills. We use so many resources, so many resources uh, the production of plastic, our computers, just about everything, it adds to our footprint. To have sanity, to have climate sanity, we need systems that are different, of course. But we also need to prepare ourselves spiritually, psychologically, for living a lifestyle that is very different from where we are today. 
And, and, pa, and why did I tell us the Sean story? I am trying to learn from people like Sean how to live simply. Communities around the world, communities of people of color, indigenous people, poor people, they need to teach us. We need to learn from them how to live more simply and how to live in community so that all of us don't need our cars and our land mowers and anything we use around our house, that we have a community pool that we can share from, that we have relationships that when I need something, my neighbor will give it to me. And I don't need to hoard everything in my house. We need the village life. So this whole work of um, undoing white supremacy or understanding whiteness, it's not just because people of color will, you know, in some ways people of color have had a kind of resilience that we in the Western privileged world don't have. I'm a person of color, but I don't have that kind of resilience that my mother or grandmother's generation had myself. Um, we need lessons. We need lessons for, from cultures that have been minimized and subjugated to get through this time of climate emergency. I hope it makes some sense. I want to end, um, go towards closing by sharing this story. Uh, and I'll make a, a few last points. The story I'm going to read you now comes from um, uh, this man called Dr. Bayo uh, Ekomolafe. The story will speak for itself and then we'll connect it back to what we've been talking about so far. He says, let me tell you a brief story this is something from my own history. I grew up in Nigeria, but I traveled the world at a young age very quickly because my father was a diplomat. He lived and worked in uh, what is now called Democratic Republic of Congo. When I was a little boy, Congo was ruled by a dictator called Mobutu Seko. One of those heady days, there was news that the shoulders of that country were disgruntled and angry because the dictator Mobutu had not paid them their salaries. So the soldiers took it upon themselves to hunt down the foreigners who, in their opinion, were the causes of their misery. That meant me and my family. I remember the night they came into our home. They broke into our home. They hurt the people who were living with us. They took away property. They held the gun to my head. It reminded me of the fires we are having around the world right now. We've been 
through the fires before. Anyway, at, on that day, they threw us out of the home we were living in with only the clothes on our backs. Miraculously, we lived, my sisters, my mother, my father. No one died. In the morning, the air was rent with cries of death and pain. It was like the sky was painted with blood. Siren cries in the sky, warnings to avoid. This is important. Warnings to avoid the highway. We had no shoes, no clothes. We barely had memories of trauma we had just endured. But we decided somehow that there was something still worth living for. So we decided to make our way to the Nigerian embassy, which was miles away. How did we do it? We went through cracks. We went through gutters. We stole through neighborhoods. We slept in the bush. We begged for bread on the road. And we got there safely and we survived. Uh, as this story goes on, I, I, I can send the link later on. Bio explains this, this thing very beautifully, what he calls going through cracks, going through cracks. Why am I highlighting this here? We have a new administration in this country coming in January 20. In my view, we have avoided that descent into dictatorship. Good, good. Our climate crisis uh, challenge is still extremely steep, extremely steep, and we are gonna face increasing chaos as I have in my view, uh, tried to explain earlier. And we are going to reach times where the highway is not going to work for us. Once again, we will need lessons on how to go through the cracks and gutters and sideways because the highway is not working. And the courage and clarity and resilience to go through the cracks I feel is going to come if we keep maintaining our relationship with deep spring, deep spring. Okay, so it's the, the, the absolute deep spring and then the deep spring of community that has, that has, that knows how to be truly in relationship with each other, vulnerable, authentic, right? Um, going through the cracks and deep spring. If you, if you could remember two things from this talk, maybe, maybe the third one is um, village life, shared village life, where our footprints are way smaller than what they are today. And by the way, we cannot work on those footprints by ourselves 
we will need community to go it's like descent into those choices together we we i imitate my friends some people say we are average of 10 friends we have right we move together we we that's why we meditate together in sanghas my friends are meditating i am inspired to meditate as well right it's the, the 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 basic psychology we have as human beings so so where do we land um in my in my view my heart's calling is to do everything i can to prepare myself communities around me for the depth of climate chaos we are going to face and to do everything to be prepared for chaos at the same time repeating myself so the messages land do everything to resist the system so that we can still stop the damage that can be stopped um that there, there is narrative around which says all we need to do is to adapt right there are forums around on the internet if if you follow climate uh news which says we've crossed the tipping point and all we can do is to adapt to get used to the apocalyptic events not true we have to prepare for trauma we have to be vulnerable be ready to grieve what has already happened and what is baked in what is necessarily going to happen but we also have a lot we can do to resist to stop the bleeding to stop what has already happened and our resistance in addition to the absolute deep spring that buddhism is so good at buddhism has pointed the way towards that deep spring our practices our liturgy our sutras they give us teaching to access that absolute uh nourishing illuminating luminous Uh, energy whatever you want to call it buddha mind big mind you know different traditions use different words yes that but in addition to that more vulnerable more authentic community that learns from people of color the cultures we have subjugated uh it's time to go back and reconnect with them stand in solidarity with them not just because they need our help for healing but because we need them to emerge from the climate crisis i hope that made some sense uh thank you so much thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the san francisco zen center our dharma talks are offered at no cost and this is made possible by the donations we receive Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click giving. May we fully enjoy the dharma.